Greetings to all of you. I want to welcome all of us at Center Street Church, those of us here at Center Campus, as well as those joining us from our campus in Beerspa. Also want to welcome our online viewers as well. We are continuing our study from the book of Exodus. And we are in the section where Egypt is uh, stricken by 10 disastrous plagues. So this will be the best Thanksgiving sermon you will ever hear. <laughs> uh, we normally associate the plagues with God's judgment in Exodus. And granted, it was God's judgment on Pharaoh's rebellion. But God was also exercising His absolute superiority over the gods of Egypt. At the same time, the plagues served a greater purpose. And the purpose of the plagues was more than judgment, more than bringing Israel out of Egypt. The plagues served as an invitation to know God. Here's a phrase you will see over and over in this section of Scripture. That you may know that I am the Lord. It was an invitation to Egypt and Pharaoh in particular, to all of Israel, and to the whole earth to come to know the one true God. The plagues served a missional purpose to persuade everyone to place their faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel. The last time we looked at the first three plagues, the Nile turned into blood. There was an invasion of frogs, and then gnats swarmed over all of Egypt. The plagues gradually increased in their intensity. Today, we will look at the next six plagues, and towards the end of the service, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper together. For those of you watching us online, if you want to participate in this uh, worship experience of uh, eating the elements together with us, then have a piece of bread and some juice ready, and we will partake of it together at the end of the service. I mentioned this before. We will go through larger sections of the narrative in Exodus simply because it is a big book with 40 chapters. So we will focus on key themes and verses. Uh, Exodus chapter 8, verses 20 to 23, talks about the plague of the flies. This is what it says. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the river and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your people, and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies. Even the ground will be covered with them. But on the day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I'll make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will occur tomorrow. Now, the word translated flies does not necessarily refer to house flies, but these bugs that Exodus is talking about is referring to a general term of, for all kinds of flying creatures. So it's not even specifically referring to a species, but a mixture of flying insects. So they abound in number. They swarm. They are all over Egypt. And the text says Egypt was ruined by the flies. The land was being destroyed, marred. The word could mean to cause injury. The effects were destructive. One successive plague after another wrecked the land of Egypt and a prosperous society like Egypt where they were brought down on their knees. 
after the plague of locusts that devoured everything that was green, Pharaoh's officials were so desperate that they literally begged Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. And this is what it says in Exodus 10, 7. Pharaoh's officials said to him, how long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not yet realize that Egypt is ruined? The Pharaoh's officials, they got it. That is enough. How long are you going to persist in your rebellion? Let them go. We can't take this anymore. A persistent rebellion against God can bring disastrous consequences to an entire nation. And that was true of Egypt at the time, and it is true today. Any nation, hear me, any nation that walks in persistent rebellion and insists on going their own way will suffer dire consequences. Now, there's something different about the fourth plague that brought the flies or mixture of flying creatures. And that is true of the successive plagues going forward. God creates a distinction between his people and the Egyptians. You know, in the case of the first three plagues, we don't see any preferential treatment in the text. It appears everybody in the land suffered along with the Israelites. But now in this fourth plague, it states clearly that God was going to create a distinction between Israel and Egypt. He's going to uh, draw a line that separates those who believe and those who don't believe. Now, according to the book of Genesis, when Joseph had become influential in Egypt, he brought his uh, father Jacob and all of his siblings, and they settled down in this land of Goshen in Egypt. So the entire Israelite population lived in one specific part of Egypt. Now, our text says... Flying insects swarm everywhere in Egypt, but the land of Goshen where the Israelites dwell was unaffected. God put an invisible no-fly zone over Goshen. You catch that pun? <laughs> That's just to wake you up. So insects, interestingly, are staying away from Goshen while they're swarming all over Egypt. And interestingly, uh, Goshen is in the heart of Egypt. So how do you explain that? It is totally supernatural, proving that God was in charge of the entire process. There is no naturalistic explanations to these plagues. While all of Egypt were reeling from one plague after another, the people of God were shielded from them. The next plague was a blow on livestock, horses, cattle, goats, sheep, donkeys, camels, they all die. The Egyptians lose all their livestock, causing severe economic loss. But once again, the people of God are protected and not a single animal dies in the land of Goshen. Exodus 9, 7 points out, Pharaoh investigated and found that not even one of the animals of the Israelites had died. Yet his heart was unyielding and he would not let the people go. Isn't that fascinating? Pharaoh thinks Moses is making this stuff up and he says only Egypt will be affected and the Israelites in Goshen will be spared. So he sends his own delegation of people, officials, to investigate if that is indeed the case and finds out that it's true. There were no flies swarming 
in Goshen. They are protected from livestock dying and severe economic loss. The Israelites were saved from painful boils. The word for boil is the same word used to refer to Job's skin condition. If you remember the book of Job, Job sat on the ground covered with painful sores or boils, and he scraped them with a broken piece of pottery. So that is the same word used to refer to the boils here in Exodus, talking about the seriousness of this condition. The Israelites didn't face the onslaught of hail, locusts, or the plague of darkness. In every case, Egypt suffers, but Israel is spared. Now, what does that mean? In the ancient Near East, the deities were believed to be territorial. The gods had power over their area of jurisdiction. So they had limited authority that was geographically restricted. But Israel's God was not a tribal deity with limited power. His power supersedes all jurisdiction. Yahweh, Israel's God, is proving to the Egyptians that His power is all-pervasive, and He is Lord even over Egypt. So Israel gets a preferential treatment, while Egypt pays the price for their rebellion. If you're listening to this, you may wonder, is God showing favoritism? Is God being slightly harsh on the Egyptians and letting his own people just slide by? And when God says, I will make a distinction between my people and your people, the word translated distinction literally means redemption. It is the language of salvation. God is preserving his people from judgment. A Pharaoh thought, he owned the Israelites, and that's why he enslaved them. God says, let my people go. Pharaoh, you're totally mistaken in assuming you own them. My people don't belong to you. They belong to me, and I'm in charge of their life. If you don't believe that, I'll show you, I'll prove to you that these indeed are my people, for none of these plagues going forward are going to touch them. God drew that line of redemption that separated his people from the rest. This Thanksgiving weekend, I want to remind us that ought to be one of the clear grounds for our Thanksgiving. And I don't know how your year has been. Maybe it has been fraught with challenges. But if you are a Christ follower, you can give thanks that you've been redeemed, that you belong to God, you're part of His family, you are set apart, and He has ownership over your life. And if God has ownership over us, then be rest assured that He will take good care of us. Let me illustrate this for you. You know, in the street where we live, the house opposite to us was owned by somebody who didn't care much about that house. And that was the case for a few years. They didn't live there. They gave it out to renters. And up here that they didn't know there's something called reference checks, that you do your due diligence before giving your house to somebody. For they rented the house to every jerk in town. 
And the people who lived there didn't care about the house. They didn't pick up after their dog. They never cut their grass. They never removed their snow. They had loud front yard parties, and it was horrible. Finally, God heard our cries and groanings, and the house went on sale. <laughs> and somebody else bought that house. And this new person who has moved in cares about the house. As soon as they moved in, they renovated it. It now looks good. They keep it clean. No more problems with difficult renters. No dogs that do their business on other people's lawn. The house is well taken care of because now it is under new management. Now think about this. There was a time we didn't belong to God. Our lives were not surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We thought we were in control and we lived our own way and everything was one big mess. But all that changed when we gave our lives to Jesus Christ for a transfer of ownership took place. He is now in charge. He has moved in. He has renovated us. He takes full responsibility over our lives, and that has made all the difference. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, one of my favorite passages, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And I want you to know today, God still maintains that distinction over his people. But there was a time when we were not the people of God. Our lives were outside of the covenant with Jesus Christ. So our lives were messed up and everything was haywire and things were spiraling out of control. But now we have been redeemed. We have a new identity. He purchased us with his own blood and he claims ownership over our lives. And our lives today serve one purpose. We live to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. In Egypt, there were plagues, but not in Goshen. Why? Because the Egyptians did not have God as their sanctuary. The Israelites had God's protective cover over their life. They took refuge under the shadow of his wings. And when you enter into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, you come under the banner of God's household. You have him as your sanctuary. He provides for all of your needs according to his riches and glory. You are under his providential care. You experience his intangible blessings like joy, peace, and contentment. And that doesn't mean our life will have no problems or we will be shielded from all trials, but we are assured of his presence. He will walk with us every step of the way. While all hell may break loose in Egypt, the people of God in Goshen can dwell in peace and harmony because God has drawn that line of redemption. 
that is why we give thanks because we are part of God's family and God takes good care of His children. Amen? Yeah. We can give thanks because we have a story to tell. In Exodus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. The signs that were performed in Egypt served as a teaching opportunity, an instructional tool, and not just for the Israelites who were there, who witnessed it firsthand, but it was an instructional tool for the generations of Israelites to come. And we know that the nation of Israel took that to heart. How do we know that? Well, when you read the Psalms, which was the worship manual of the Israelites, so many of the Psalms make reference to the Exodus. Psalm 78, Psalm 80, Psalm 99, Psalm 105 and 106 all speak of the Exodus, their journey through the wilderness and finally their destination to the promised land. So generations of Israelites heard the story of God's wonder-working power. Now picture this, storytelling is a campfire activity. A Jewish grandparent would sit around the fire with the whole family, children, grandchildren, and they will intentionally pass on these great stories of faith to their family. Young boys and girls with wide eye will listen to these great stories of faith of how one plague after another struck the land of Egypt, but the Israelites were protected. Now, if I was a little boy, do you know what would have excited me the most? It's the contest between Moses and the magicians of Egypt. This is better than Harry Potter. Here we have the Egyptian magicians trying to prove that they are strong, that they can do exactly what Moses does, and they're trying to match him in all areas. Moses' staff becomes a snake. They duplicate the miracle and manage to come up with the same. This is a battle of power. But Moses' snake swallows the snakes of the magicians. After the third plague, the magicians quit. They're no longer in the contest. They say, this is the finger of God. We can't do anything about this. When the plague of boils strike Egypt, the text points out in Exodus 9, 10, and 11, so they took suit from a furnace and stood before Pharaoh, Moses tossed it into the air and festering boils broke out on people and animals. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them and on all the Egyptians. Now we, the modern readers of the Bible, don't always see the humor in the Bible text. But imagine a campfire where the grandpa is sharing all these exciting stories and he's narrating how hard. The magicians are trying to keep up with Moses. They're trying to duplicate all of Moses' miracles. Finally, they give up, 
And now the boils strike, and magicians cannot even show up to work or even stand in the presence of Moses because they are covered with boils. They go on a sick leave. I'm sure that brought a lot of laughter around the campfire. So in this contest of power, clearly God was asserting his authority, and the story was passed on from one generation to another. I see here a great application for us. When we sit around the table for our Thanksgiving meal, don't forget to tell the story of the great things God has done for you. One generation needs to testify to the next of the wonder-working power of God. So proclaim the good things that God has done in our lives. Let me ask you today, are there any testimonies here in the house of God? Has God done anything for anybody here? If that is the case, let's not be silent. Let us not be silent. Let us open our mouth to testify God's faithfulness in our lives so the generations to come after us will hear about the wonder-working power of God. When the pandemic was at its peak and chaos was abounding, God protected you. When some of you lost jobs, remember that moment of disillusionment? God provided for you. When you were feeling lonely and isolated, God comforted you. When you were praying for a breakthrough in your life, God came through for you. Don't keep these great stories to yourself. Share them and encourage others. Let it impact generations that come after us. As you read the account of the plagues and as you see the intensity of the plagues, you may think God is being harsh on the Egyptians. He's creating a distinction between His people and the rest, and it feels like that's unfair. But I want you to know, as you read the text, you will see that God is not using double standards. For even the Egyptians, were given an invitation to believe in the God of Israel. Why do you think so many times Moses gave an advance notice of the plague that is coming? It's so that people who choose to believe can take necessary steps of faith. You know, in Exodus 10, before the plague of the locusts, this is what God says, Exodus 10, 3. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they may worship me. God is saying, how long, Pharaoh? How long am I going to put up with you? I'm giving you one opportunity after another, and you're insisting on hardening your heart and going your own way. And interestingly, some of the Egyptians chose to believe. And we see this in the plague of the hail, which is one plague I can relate to the most, because we experienced one not long ago in June 2020. And that hailstorm in Calgary caused a damage of $1.2 billion. When it hailed, the noise was so loud it was deafening. A hail can cause so much damage in just a matter of minutes. 
It pounds so hard that it smashes everything. Now, our neighborhood looked like a war zone. And I so wish that day God created a distinction between those who believed in Him and those who didn't. That didn't happen. <laughs> so look at what the text says here about the plague of the hail. Exodus 9, 19 to 21. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every person and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field and they will die. Here's the interesting part. Verse 20, those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside, but those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. There you go. The officials of Pharaoh were waking up to the reality of God at work all around them. And some of them took refuge under Yahweh, and they were not rejected. Clearly, God's heart was not to destroy Egypt, but he longed for them to come to know him. Centuries later, in the book of Isaiah, we have a stunning prophecy about Egypt. When I read this, it just blew my mind. Look at Isaiah 19, 19 to 21. It says, in that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt and a monument to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, did you see that? Egypt is now crying out to God because they are being oppressed. It says He will send them a Savior and Defender, and He will rescue them. So the Lord will make Himself known to the Egyptians. And in that day, they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings. They will make vows to the Lord and keep them. What a turnaround. If you're not familiar with the Bible, and you read the account of Exodus alone, you may assume God is being harsh on Egypt, that He's treating them harshly like they are His enemies. But Isaiah is telling a different story. He says, one day, worshipers will arise even from the land of Egypt and will give praise to God. How is that possible? It's possible through the Savior that God was going to send. One of the climactic plagues was the plague of darkness just before the final one, the death of the firstborn, which we will look at in detail later. The plague of darkness foreshadowed another plague that would strike centuries later that made it possible for all the nations to come to the worship of the living God. A text says this about the plague of darkness in Exodus 10, 21 to 23. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so the darkness spreads over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days, yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. This was an ominous plague. Our 21st century is not used to darkness. We have flashlights on our cell phone. 
Even when we do outdoor camping, we carry artificial light with us. Darkness that can be felt, that is scary. Thick darkness just enveloped the whole land of Egypt. And this plague of darkness was an attack on the core of the Egyptian religion. One of the primary Egyptian deity was the sun god named Ra. And this plague of darkness was a direct attack on this deity, rendered powerless because the sun is not going to rise. In Exodus, God drew a line of distinction and redemption that separated Israel from Egypt. Centuries later, God would once again draw a line of redemption. This time, the intent was not to exclude Egypt, but to include them. God was going to redeem all of humanity, and this time, He Himself will pay the price. Three days of darkness in Egypt foreshadows the darkness of Calvary. The Gospels tell us, as Jesus hung on the cross, the land was once again enveloped by thick darkness. Matthew 27, 45 to 46 says, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That Friday afternoon, thick darkness surrounded the land of Israel a sign of God's judgment, God's disapproval over humanity's decision to rebel and walk away from Him. And Jesus, who is God the Son, bore the wrath of God, faced judgment in our place, and all of God's righteous indignation against the sins of the whole world was being poured out on one person. And no wonder Jesus felt forsaken at that moment. No wonder he couldn't feel the presence of God anymore because he was carrying the sins of the entire world on his back. And Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And because of that dark day in history, no one has to ever say those words again. No one, whether they are from Israel or Egypt, irrespective of their nationality or ethnicity, will be excluded from God's presence. Nobody will be forsaken. Everyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ can experience God's presence, can have an unbroken fellowship with Him, and receive the promise that He will never leave us or forsake us. As we transition to celebrating the Lord's Supper, we will now pause to think of what Jesus has done for us, the greatness of His sacrifice, and remind ourselves this Thanksgiving weekend, nothing can separate us from the love of God that has been revealed in Jesus Christ. His body was bruised. His blood was shed so people from all nations can worship Jesus as our Lord and our King. So would you take a moment of silence right now to just close your eyes?
reflect on what you've heard and personalize this message and give thanks to Jesus for the agonies of the cross, for what he went through to save you from God's judgment. Lord, we want to say thank you from the bottom of our hearts that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation set apart for your purposes. And all of that is possible because of what you have done for us, Jesus, that you paid the price on the cross so we can walk in freedom, receive the gift of forgiveness, and live out your kingdom purposes in this world. So would you bless our time as we partake of these elements that we will encounter you in a meaningful way. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, you can take the communion elements that were given to you and you can open the top to remove the, the wafer and then below that is the juice. Acts chapter 2 gives us the model of the early church, their example, the things that they were committed to as God's people. And you will see that 2,000 years later, nothing has changed. You know, we still hold on to the same convictions that the early church held on to. Acts 2.42 says, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. All of these are markers of our faith, which we still observe and hold on to. Breaking of bread is another expression for the Lord's Supper. This is an ordinance for Christian believers. All of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ and have received the assurance of our sins forgiven. The elements that we hold in our hands are powerful symbols that visualize the message of the cross for us. And as we partake of these elements by faith, we encounter Jesus in a fresh new way. So we do this often to remind ourselves of Jesus' sacrifice for us. Shall we all stand together as we prepare to partake of these elements? The body of Jesus was broken so we can have access to God's presence. No one who places their faith in Jesus Christ will be excluded from the presence of God. That is God's promise to us. Let's partake of the bread with gratitude. The blood of Jesus was shed so we who have been washed in the blood of Jesus are spared from God's judgment. We stand strong in our identity as sons and daughters of the living God. 
let's partake of the cup with gratitude. As we remain standing, I'm going to hand it to our worship team to lead us in a closing song. This is an opportunity for us to lift the name of Jesus on high, to express our adoration and worship for all that He has done for us. So let's join with our team in singing together.